Welcome everybody to today's episode of the Law of Self Defense show. A full a full five minutes late starting. My apologies for that. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self Defense. Thank you, thank you very very much. Uh, sorry about the delay, but as the show gets near, I always think of more things I want to add to the content, and I was just prepping those. Let's make sure we're streaming in all the places we need to be streaming. Uh, it looks like we are. This is an open access show, so it's not only for Law of Self-Defense members, although, of course, it is streaming to the Law of Self-Defense member dashboard, and that is the only place where we answer questions or address comments, is on the Law of Self-Defense member uh, dashboard for our members. And come on, Rumble. You never really know if Rumble's going to work. But it looks like it is. All right. Awesome. So we're streaming everywhere. So today we are going to talk about a Harvard, Harvard study, technically out of the Harvard School of Public Health study on defensive display of guns. And their conclusion is that defensive display is more often done in an unlawful, criminal, aggressive manner, offensive manner, than it is done defensively. And therefore, self-defense is bad. This study is such a pile of hot garbage that I just couldn't let it go. We have to dissect this. It is the height of research incompetence on every level. I mean, I'm used to propaganda on gun control out of Harvard, uh, but this study should never have seen the light of day. It's just garbage from top to bottom. And I'll explain in today's show how that is the case. So let's go ahead. Uh, everybody make yourselves comfortable. We're going to dive in. Let me hit the, oh, I don't have the, um, I don't have the correct little, let's see. <laughs> the correct little video. One second, one second. I do want to use it. It was, uh, effort was made to, well, never mind. I'll just go with the one I have. Here we go. Okay, welcome again to today's episode of Law of Self-Defense, where we're going to debunk, really destroy, this Harvard study on defensive display of guns and how self-defense is a bad thing, a societal negative. Uh, before we do, of course, today's show is sponsored by none other than the Law of Self-Defense itself. If you're not yet a Law of Self-Defense member, I have to ask you why. It's dirt cheap. In fact, you can try it for two weeks, unlimited access to all our members-only content. And more than half our content every week is members-only, folks. So you're missing half the content if you're not a member. You can try it for two weeks for just 99 cents. Negative risk opportunity. If you decide you don't like it, we'll give you back 200% of your money. If you decide you do like it, and virtually everybody does, well, then it's only about 30 cents a day after that. Less than $10 a month to be a Law of Self-Defense member. As I mentioned in these live streams, the only questions we answer, the only comments we address are those in the Law of Self-Defense dashboard from our members. So if you're commenting in YouTube, asking questions on Rumble or on Twitter, I just, I won't even see it, folks. I just don't look. 
And a big part of what we provide as members-only content are the our legal analysis, legal breakdowns of use of force events caught on video. I tend not to put them on YouTube because I just get them monetized. It's not worth the effort. So we make them members-only content. And to give you an example of what we cover in that respect, yesterday we covered the case of a, a robbery gone bad for the robber in which the victims take advantage of an opportunity to run the robber down. Here's a little clip of that video. Just a few seconds. So you see the robber by the car. He's running. The getaway car leaves him behind. And the victims of the robbery, bam. Actually, there's two bams. When that robber is struck by the car and thrown into the air, he still has his gun in hand, and he manages to shoot himself in the head. He's apparently alive in the hospital. Uh, we do, we did yesterday an extensive legal breakdown of this event. The answer may surprise you as to whether or not this use of the car as a deadly force weapon was appropriate in these circumstances. We did that yesterday, but only for law self-defense members. So if you're not a law self-defense member, you didn't see it. Tomorrow, we'll be covering an extensive video of a cop who's making an arrest of someone driving a stolen U-Haul truck. And that suspect goes for the officer's gun. Hard. Here's a little clip of that video, just a few seconds of it. This goes on for minutes, folks. Now, fortunately, it ends bad for the suspect and good for the cop. But it's a lot of lessons to be learned tactically and legally from this event. But again, tomorrow when we do this coverage, this legal breakdown of this Suspect seizing the cop's gun, it will only be for law of self-defense members. So if you're not a law of self-defense member, you won't see it. So why not be a law of self-defense member? Just try it out for two weeks, 99 cents at lawofselfdefense.com slash trial. All right, so let's dive into this study, this ridiculous study. Let me zoom it up here so it's a little easier to read. Gun use in the United States results from two national surveys. First of all, a terrible title uh, done by one uh, Hemingway, Hemingway, Azriel, and Miller, published in the journal Injury Prevention uh, out of the Department of Public Health and Policy Management from the Harvard School of Public Health. Full disclosure, uh, in a previous career, I worked at the Harvard School of Public Health. There you go. So correspondence, if anybody wants to correspond with the lead author, Professor Hemingway, the journal, uh, as is normal practice, provides his work email for that purpose. So let's take a look at the abstract for this case. Objectives. To determine the relative incidence of gun victimization versus self-defense gun use by civilians in the United States and the circumstances and probable legality of the self-defense use. So to translate this into English, what they're looking at are defensive displays of guns, brandishing of a gun at another person and trying to determine how often that happens in an unlawful manner, illegal, and how often that happens in a lawful manner. And spoiler, their conclusion is that it happens far more often in an unlawful manner than in a lawful manner. And therefore, defensive display is inherently a social ill. 
the methods of this study. Now, before I dive into this, folks, because I will be critical of their methods, I feel obliged to say that I was taught research methodology as a graduate student at Harvard University in primarily in the course on epidemiology. I'm, I'm trained at a high level in at least understanding the confounding factors, the negative attributes of a bad methodology. And there are a lot of them in this study. Some of them just outright political bias. Other th Others, I suspect the authors, Hemingway included, simply were too ignorant to understand that they were building these confounding factors uh, into the study. Now, I'm going to focus on the legal confounding factors as opposed to the research methodology confounding factors because, of course, the law is my area of expertise, but I just wanted to point that out. I'm, I'm not just pulling stuff out of uh, my pants here. So the methods, uh, national random digital dial telephone surveys of the adult population were conducted in 1996 and 1999. This study was published in 2000, so it's, it's not new. The Harvard surveys appear unique among private surveys in two respects. Asking one, open-ended questions about defensive gun use incidents, and two, detailed questions about both gun victimization and self-defense gun use. So here, first of all, we have a confounding factor. Right. If someone points a gun at you, whether it's legal or illegal, you incur no legal liability for that. That's their conduct. It's not your conduct. I'm not talking about what you might have done to provoke them to point a gun, for example, if, if that might have been the case. Simply the act of pointing the gun at you. That's their legal problem. It's not your legal problem. So if you were to tell a, a, an anonymous person on the phone, yes, yeah, somebody pointed a gun at me. That doesn't raise any legal liability for you. But if you were to tell them, yes, I pointed a gun at another person, maybe that was lawful, maybe not. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you think it is, but you're not sure. So there is legal liability there, at least potentially. So might you be a lot more reluctant to share a story about a gun being pointed at you with a stranger than you would share a story about you pointing a gun at another person? So right there, we have a confounding factor. You're not going to get both stories at the same rate because there's a liability issue and therefore a bias in the responses you're going to get. And it's inherent to the questions. It's not otherwise unavoidable. Then this one, this I really like. Five criminal court judges were asked to assess whether the self-reported defensive gun uses were likely to have been legal. First of all, we're presuming that the judges are competent to do this. Judges make mistakes all the time on the law. That's why we have appellate courts. Second, we're assuming that even if they are competent, they're all applying the same legal test to determine legality. Spoiler, these judges, these five judges, are from three different jurisdictions each of which has a different test for the lawfulness of self-defense. Now, this study doesn't actually tell us how the judges evaluated legality. So we don't know. That part of the methodology doesn't exist in this study. The authors may not. The authors probably presume, being non-lawyers, they probably presume that there's only one test for lawful self-defense. 
And therefore, all the judges are applying the same test. But in fact, that's not the case. Self-defense law varies from state to state, and it particular varies in the three states from which these judges were drawn. And I'll illustrate for you that, that for you in a moment. Probably Hemingway, the lead author of this study, and the other authors have no idea that this is the case. That's their level of ignorance. Yet they built a study centered on that precise question, whether the defensive display was likely lawful or not. That's the purpose of this study. And they don't even understand the test being applied for purposes of legality. So obviously, if the methodology is broken, and I've already pointed out one way it is, right? You're going to get biased responses to the questions, but also the legal test being applied is indeterminate and probably ignorant. Well, if the machine is garbage, we've all heard the phrase garbage in, garbage out. You put bad data into a computer, you get bad results at the other end. Well, what if the computer's garbage? Then it doesn't matter what data you put in, you're going to get bad results or at least unreliable results. So here are the results. Even after excluding many reported firearm victimizations, far more survey respondents report having been threatened or intimidated with a gun than having used a gun to protect themselves. Again, this goes to the bias of the question. If you say, yeah, I was threatened with a gun one time, there's no legal liability for you there. But if you say, I pointed a gun at someone and threatened them with it, is there potential legal liability there? Of course. Continuing, a majority of the reported self-defense gun uses were rated as probably illegal by a majority of these five judges from three different states, each of which has a different test for self-defense. So this is garbage. This was so even under the assumption that the respondent had a permit to own and carry the gun and that the respondent had described the event honestly. Uh, but th did they presume that the judges were asking the right questions or provided with the data necessary to come to a conclusion of lawfulness or not on self-defense? No, they were not. Conclusions. Guns are used to threaten and intimidate far more often than they are used in self-defense. Well, obviously, this conclusion is based on garbage. So the conclusion is garbage. Continuing, most self-reported self-defense gun uses may well be illegal. Well, they may be. And against the interests of society. So this is pure speculation. They don't know. By the way, there are millions, millions of gun uses. In fact, I was just reading the Bruin decision yesterday. And I recall they mentioned how many defensive gun uses there are. Let's see. Yes. From the Bruin decision, defensive firearm use occurs up to 2.5 million times per year. Keep that number in mind. 2.5 million defensive uses of guns per year. And most of those are defensive displays. A shot's not fired. So in the context of 2.5 million, let's take a look at how many events these researchers looked at. Let's get a sense of whether or not we have a representative sample for purposes of this study. So here we have a little introductory content. The United States has a higher homicide rate than other developed nations, and most of our murders are committed with firearms. Right away, we have idiocy. 
immediately in the first sentence because they're conflating homicide with murder. Homicide and murder are two different things. A homicide is simply one person killing another person. A murder is someone doing that unlawfully. But not all homicides are unlawful. If a police officer shoots a suspect trying to kill the officer, that's a homicide, but it's not a murder. If an intended rape victim shoots her rapist and kills him, that's a homicide, but it's not a murder. And if you can't distinguish between homicide and murder, you don't know what you're talking about. Because whether a homicide is a good thing or a bad thing depends on who is doing the dying. If a homicide is in self-defense, that's a social good, not a social ill. So conflating the two is just, again, utter, utter trash. Continuing. On an average day in the 1990s in the United States, 35 to 50 Americans were murdered with firearms and another 120 to 160 were shot in assaults but did not die. Again, we, we can't trust their use of the word murder here because they obviously don't understand the distinction between murder and homicide. For all we know, the 35 to 50 Americans were homicides as opposed to murders. Shootings that result in injury are a small percentage of hostile events involving firearms, right? Because most of the time shots are not fired in self-defense. In some of these events, guns may thwart criminal assaults. In others, they may be instruments of aggression. Of course, because guns don't self-animate and do stuff. Humans have to wield those guns, and different humans will wield the guns for different purposes. Law-abiding people will wield the guns for social good, self-defense, defense of others. Bad actors will wield the guns for social ills. Murder, manslaughter, robbery, rape. It's the humans. It's not the guns. <clears throat> Evidence about the incidents and characteristics of gun victimization and self-defense gun use come from two types of surveys. The first is the large public national crime victimization survey, the NCVS. The NCVS, conducted by the Census Bureau for the Bureau of Justice Statistics, asks questions of the same household every six months for three years. By excluding incidents reported in the first interview, that is by bounding the responses, the NCVS greatly reduces the substantial problem of telescoping, the reporting of events that actually occurred outside the time frame in question. In criminal victimization surveys, telescoping can increase estimates. Well, okay, well, they, they say they excluded that, so we don't need to talk about it. The NCVS focuses on six. Well, sorry, folks. Of course, it's my wife calling in the middle of the show. I don't do the show every day or at the same time or anything. Anyway, here we go. Uh, the NCVS focuses on six specific serious crimes, for example, assault, rape, robbery, and asks the respondent whether she or he has been the victim of an attempted or completed crime within the preceding six months. Follow-up questions ask whether the offender used a gun in the criminal attempt, as well as what, if anything, the respondent did to protect himself Estimates from the NCVS suggest that each year about 1 million violent crimes involve guns while victims use guns in self-defense, perhaps 60,000 to 120,000 times a year. Again, I just quoted from uh, Bruin, 2.5 million defensive gun uses a year. 
of course, this is 2023. Bruin was last year, 2022. This study is from 2000. Many smaller one-shot private surveys have asked one or more questions about self-defense gun use. Estimates of self-defense gun use from such surveys are, are on an order of magnitude higher than the NCVS estimates. Two features of these private surveys probably explain most of the difference. Okay, let's get in. They're talking about other studies. Let's get into this study. In 1996 and 1999, national surveys focusing on defensive and offensive gun use were conducted under the auspices of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center. You think that might have a bias in favor of gun control, anti-Second Amendment political perspective? The Harvard surveys appear to be the only private surveys to ask either one, open-ended questions about defensive gun uses, or two, detailed questions of each respondent about both gun victimization and self-defense gun uses. This article presents evidence on the relative frequency and circumstances of these two types of gun use, as well as on their probable legality. Methods. Data come from two national random digital dial surveys conducted by fact finders, so telephone surveys. How many of you answer phone, your phone from, from unknown numbers? How many of you at home available to answer a phone and are willing to participate in a lengthy survey? So these are all confounding factors. Uh, conducted by fact finders in the spring of 1996 and the spring of 1999. The samples comprise respectively 1,905 and 2,521 adults living in the 50 states. Now, let me share a story with you from, from my youth. When I was in high school, I had friends who would get jobs a couple hours a day, a few days a week, just some side money for high school kids, conducting telephone surveys. They would go to the office building where the survey company was. They'd be put in a little cubicle. Uh, they'd be given a computer, and the computer would automatically dial numbers, and people would answer the phone, and sometimes they were willing to do the survey and sometimes not. And sometimes the surveys could be very long. They were for soap companies, for car companies, all kinds of different industries. But sometimes the survey was 100 questions. And you got paid in part on how many surveys were fully completed. So if the person dumped out in the middle of the survey, you got less compensation than if the survey was completed. This was to incentivize the survey taker to encourage the participant to stay to the end. Now, of course, when you get them on the phone, you don't want to tell them, hey, this is a 45-minute survey, right? Everybody would say no. So you tell them it'll only take a few minutes. And then when you get to 20 minutes, 25 minutes, they start trying to pull out of the survey. And it's your job to encourage them to stay in. Or, or I was told by my friends that it got a lot easier if the survey didn't last 45 minutes. In fact, you could make the survey last less than 10 minutes. How would you do that? You would ask the first multiple choice question. And while the respondent is thinking about their answer, they have four choices. Oh, I don't know, maybe A, B, C, or D. I'll have to think about it. How many times a week do we use ketchup? While they're thinking about that, you've actually filled in the answer, a fake answer for them on question one. And you've done that for question two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. And then when they respond, 
A, that's the answer you put in for question 21, which you never actually ask them. Then you ask them question 22. And while they're thinking about their response to question 22, you're filling in false data on the next 20 sets of questions. So what's the actual value of that survey in terms of reflecting reality? It's garbage. It's obviously garbage. Of course, the person participating doesn't know that. They think you're taking down their responses. They think you only had 10 questions for them. And the person, the company, the client receiving the survey doesn't know. They think they're getting actual survey data. But the survey is actually garbage. Did that happen here? I don't know. Does it happen in telephone surveys? I have first-hand information that it does. So, data comes from two national random digital dial surveys conducted by Fact Finders, Inc. in the spring of 1996 and the spring of 1999. The samples comprised 1,905 and 2,521 adults living in 50 states. By the way, just look at the distribution, right? So you have 2,000 people, roughly, from 50 different states. So that's what, uh, 50 from each? Less, 40 from each, right? Four times 50 would be 200, 40 times 50 would be 2,000. Imagine taking a state of a population of millions of people and surveying 40 and considering that adequate. By the way, remember, 2.5 million defensive gun uses a year. And they surveyed a couple thousand. Even if you go by their figure, which was like 60 to uh, 120,000 people, they surveyed a couple thousand. Their figures of defensive gun use, 60,000 to 120,000. A representative sample of defensive gun uses? I would suggest not. In any case, the samples were stratified by state with the number of interviews designated for each state determined by the state's population. Uh, relative to the total population, according to the census, uh, so more people were surveyed from more populated states, all households with a single telephone line, including those with unlisted numbers, uh, had an equal probability of inclusion in the sample. They do that by just randomly generating phone numbers. So they capture unlisted numbers, too. They're not, they're not in those days, believe it or not, uh, pulling things out of a paper phone book. Households without a telephone were excluded from the sample. Well, I guess so. It's a telephone survey. No more than one adult from each household was interviewed. Rather than interview the adult who happened to be at home at the time of the call, the interviewers alternately asked to speak with a man or with a woman living in the household. If there was no adult living in the house, so they didn't survey kids. Okay. If there was no adult living in the household of the requested gender, the initial respondent was interviewed. Results, so if they couldn't find the person they want, they settled for the person they, their own methodology suggests was inadequate. Great. The results show unweighted data. So all they, although they weighted survey participants by the population of the state, they unweighted them. They put them all in one bucket when they did their analysis. Once a telephone number was randomly selected, as many as 10 repeat phone calls were made until a final disposition was assigned. In 1996, 27% of contacted households refused to participate in the survey. You think that's a confounding factor? You think maybe the households that had 
had an event where they pointed a gun at another person. Maybe don't want to talk about that. Maybe they never called 911 because the, the, the bad guy ran away. They don't want any police involvement. These are not questions they want to answer so they don't participate. So you're, you're diluting your sample for positive self-defense gun uses. In 1996, 27% of contacted households refused to participate in the survey. In 1999, 35% refused. These response rates are comparable to other self-defense gun use surveys because they're all defective in this way. Folks, a stranger calling you at home and asking, have you ever been involved in a defensive gun use that may or may not have been lawful? What kind of answer do you think you're going to get to that? You think everyone's going to volunteer? They pointed their gun at another human? It's for the same reason all dietary studies done in adult humans are garbage. Because people don't tell the truth about what they eat. You can give them a diary, and they don't keep the diary. They fill it in at the end of the week, whatever their recollection is of what food they might have eaten. And you know they're biasing that. They're not, they're not remembering the candy bars if they're in a dietary study. They're not going to do what they have been conditioned to believe is the socially bad thing, eating junk food. Their responses are going to be biased in favor of doing the right thing, the good thing, the thing that will make people love them, eating the healthy food. So they overstate the number of salads and they understate the gallons of ice cream. Always, every time, that is human nature. So these these confounding factors are built into these, these surveys. Continuing now, respondents who answered yes to either gun use I'll start again. Respondents who answered yes to either gun use qualifying question were asked up to 30 follow-up questions about the most recent event. 30 questions, folks, including an open-ended question which asked them to describe the incident. So they're getting facts from the respondent. You think those facts are accurate? You think they're truthful? You think the respondent knows the five elements of self-defense, so even knows what facts are relevant to provide to a judge to evaluate the legality of the use of force? All results eliminate respondents who were police officers, security guards, or military personnel. By the way, those were the people apparently most likely to be willing to participate because they were excluded and the percentage of exclusions in this data is huge as a percentage of the total number of responses. We'll see that when we get to the tables of data. Results also eliminate cases in which the respondent reported that the event occurred more than five years before the survey or outside the United States. In the case of hostile gun displays, we also eliminated incidents in which the respondent refused to provide any detailed information about the event at the time of the initial interview. The respondent appeared to be an observer rather than a participant in the event or was thought to be a criminal, for example, by the police. Well, how would you know that the respondent to your survey is thought to be a criminal by the police? You don't know who this person is. You didn't call the police and ask them, do you consider this person to be a criminal? So so what does that mean? And the person who refused to provide any detailed information, maybe that's the person who's appropriately cautious about 
perhaps implicating themselves in unlawful conduct because they don't know what's lawful or not. Doesn't mean their conduct was unlawful. It means they don't know. And they don't want to take the risk of incriminating themselves by providing details. We were more stringent about what was counted as a hostile gun display and more permissive about what was counted as a self-defense gun use. As I'll show you, folks, uh, they don't know what a self-defense gun use is. The judges they retained to evaluate legality of a defensive display could not have known whether or not these were defensive gun uses or not, or more accurately, more fairly to the judges, each of them applied a different legal standard. So their collective responses are, are meaningless. Continuing, the specific qualifying questions in both surveys were similar. Well, ideally, they would have been identical, right? In 1999, respondents were asked, in the past five years, has anyone used, displayed, or brought out a gun in a hostile manner against you, even if this event did not take place as part of the commission of a crime? Well, what, what kind of question is that? If someone displays a gun at you in a hostile way, isn't that a crime? As opposed to a defensive way? And who would say... They pointed a gun at me, but it was in lawful self-defense because I was robbing them. Does that make any sense? The only thing people would ever admit to is that the other person pointed the gun at them in an unlawful way. Did not take part as the commission of a crime. The 1996 question did not include the against you and so obtained more instances when the respondent was merely a witness. But I thought they excluded. Didn't they just say here? Uh, let's see. We we also eliminated incidents in which the respondent appeared to be an observer rather than a participant in the event. But now they're saying they counted people. In 1996, it didn't include the against you part of the question, so it obtained more instances when the respondent was merely a witness. So already the data is inconsistent. The collection parameters are inconsistent between the two surveys. Apples and oranges. Continuing, the 1999 survey inadvertently omitted an open-ended question about the most recent hostile gun display. Four to eight months after the initial interview, we tried to recontact all those who had reported a hostile gun display against them. We were able to gain a verbatim description of the most recent event from half these respondents. All right, so they bollocks their own survey. They forgot to ask the relevant question. And when they went back months later, eight months later, only half the people would respond. In 6% of these instances, it appeared that the respondent merely witnessed the hostile gun display. In calculating the number of hostile gun displays, we thus excluded 6% of all non-contacted respondents who reported a hostile gun display. So they they took the 6% from the people who did respond to the follow-up. And they just presumed that would be true of the people who did not respond to follow-up. Might there be a distinction between people willing to respond to follow-up and people not willing to respond to follow-up? Yes, another confounding factor in this study. Just from basic research methodology, we're not even to the law yet. Uh, All respondents in the 1999 survey were asked, in the past five years, You think people have a good memory five years back? 
In the past five years, have you used, displayed, or brought out a gun in self-defense to protect yourself from a person or people? The 1996 survey asked, in the past five years, have you used a gun to protect yourself from a person or people? You know, they mentioned the NCVS survey, and it only asked people about the prior six months. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they don't ask about the prior five years? Because people don't remember five years. They they don't remember four years, five years, six years. Six months, they might remember. Probably not. I would be very skeptical. But whatever you believe six months is worth, five years is worth nothing. In order to obtain a generous estimate of self-defense gun uses, we included incidents even when the respondent refused to give any information about the event or from the description it appeared the other party never knew the respondent displayed the gun. Self-defense gun use incidents were summarized and sent to five criminal court judges from California, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts. You see it highlighted in yellow? That's because now we're at the law. And this is where attorney Andrew Branca digs in the fangs. So self-defense gun use incidents were summarized and sent to five criminal court judges from California, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts who were assured anonymity. Why? Why would they need anonymity? I would evaluate these cases. I wouldn't ask for anonymity. The judges were told to assume that the respondents had a permit to own and carry the gun and had described the event on... By the way, are you required in most of the country to have a permit to own a gun? I mean, in 27 states now, you don't need a permit to carry a gun. But even in 2000, in most of the country, you didn't need a permit to simply own a gun and had described the event honestly from his or her own perspective. The judges were then asked to give their best guess whether based on the respondent's description of the incident, the respondent's use of the gun was very likely legal, likely legal, as likely as not legal, unlikely legal, or very unlikely legal. What options not available here, folks? Can you spot it? Undetermined. I don't have the facts to know. How likely is it that a respondent would provide all the relevant facts necessary to do a five elements of self-defense analysis? That's presuming the judge is new enough to do in elements of self-defense analysis. They often don't. We don't know. We don't know what rubric these judges use to evaluate the legality of the defense of gun use because the authors of the study don't tell us. They probably don't know either. They probably just assumed it's a judge, sits in criminal court. They must know what they're doing. And all of them must be doing it the same way, even though they're from different jurisdictions. Also, even the authors concede what these judges provided the authors of this study was their best guess. It's a guess. Are we supposed to base public policy decisions on guesses of anonymous judges? A mere five out of the entire country and from three different jurisdictions that don't apply the same legal standard for self-defense. All right, before I get to the results of this garbage study, and obviously the results of a garbage study can only be garbage, I'm going to dive into the legalities and illustrate how different the legal standards are for self-defense among these judges 
and therefore how their conclusions cannot be aggregated because they're applying different tests. So before I do that, let me take a quick moment to jump in. Where is it? Let me take a quick look because we're already 40 minutes in. So let me take a quick look at the chat and see if there's anything I need to address before I jump into the actual law here. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, law self-defense members. By the way, the only, the only place we answer questions or address comments is in the law self-defense member dashboard in the chat. So if you're not a law self-defense member, if you're on YouTube or Rumble or Twitter, I'm not seeing your comments or questions. I can see your comment or question. If you post it in the member chat, you can get access to the chat right now instantly by becoming a law self-defense member. Try out our two-week trial membership. It's only 99 cents, folks. And if you stay a member after that, it's only about 30 cents a day, less than $10 a month to be a law self-defense member. And that's who I'm addressing today. Let's see. Let's see. <laughs> Zakuza says, well, all you have to do is call one person from each state and boom, you surveyed the whole country. It's just science. Tony says, it's like stats. Create a conclusion and find the data that supports it. It certainly appears that way. David says, lies, damn lies and statistics. Question, uh, Tony D, where can we find legit studies on this topic? John Lott, Dr. John Lott, Crime Research Prevention, Crime Prevention Research Center. Let me, let me look it up. CrimePreventionResearchCenter.org does the uh, the best studies on this. He's he's a friend of the show. Uh, he's been a guest on our on our shows before. I I, I think the world of John. It's humbling uh, that uh, that he says the same about me. So it's a mutual admiration society. John Lott does the best work here. And he's not particularly a gun guy. He just does honest research. Let's see. Zakuza says, guesses by these judges are just as good as facts and evidence in the law. Yeah, I would suggest not. Okay. Uh, oh, is there more? Yeah. Okay. I answered all those. So let's, let's jump now into, into the science. So remember the three states mentioned here. They, they had five judges evaluate these events for lawfulness or unlawfulness, but they were only from three states, California, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts. So the question is, do they do, do those three states apply the same test, do the same legal analysis to determine whether or not a defensive display would be lawful or not? A display or a use of force, just self-defense. Now, hopefully, most of you know, self-defense, any claim of self-defense, a legal claim of self-defense has up to five elements. It's good news. There's not 500. There's not 50. There's only five. By the way, you can get this cheat sheet for free, folks. Uh, it's a free PDF download, lawofselfdefense.com slash elements. 
So the five elements are innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonable. Innocence, you're the innocent victim of the crime. You're not the aggressor. Uh, imminence, the threat you're defending yourself against is actually occurring or immediately about to occur. It's not a past threat or a future threat. Proportionality, you're only using deadly defensive force if you're facing a deadly force threat. Avoidance, if there's a generalized legal duty to retreat, if safely possible, you did that. Now, avoidance is the least like is least required of these five elements. I'll come back to that in a moment. Proportionate, uh, sorry, reasonableness. Was your perception of the threat and your need to use force, did you both have a genuine, good faith, subjective belief in the need to defend yourself? And was that belief also objectively reasonable? So it wasn't irrational. Those are the five elements of self-defense. But not all five elements are always required. In fact, that element of avoidance, whether or not you have a legal duty to retreat, is the element that most varies across the 50 states. There are only 11 states that impose that element of avoidance, that impose a generalized legal duty to retreat before you can defend yourself. 39 states are stand-your-ground states. They don't apply the element of avoidance in an otherwise lawful case of self-defense. So whether or not a state requires the element of avoidance can obviously make a big difference in whether or not a use of force is self-defense and lawful or not, and unlawful. We'll come back to that in a moment. But first, let's take a look at each of these three states. So California. The law of avoidance in California. Here's a um, California Supreme Court decision from 1897, folks. 1897, still valid law in California. But I wanted to give you the, the origin of this in California law. It reads, People v. Lewis, California Supreme Court, 1897, quote, California law nowhere imposes the duty of retreat upon one who without fault himself is exposed to a sudden felonious attack, this state has upheld a defendant's right to stand his ground and meet by force a sudden and violent attack. And if you're thinking, well, Andrew, this is a, a California Supreme Court decision from 1897. How do we know it's still good law? Well, here is the current California criminal jury instruction on self-defense, CalCrim 505. It reads, a defendant is not required to retreat. This is what a jury is instructed today in self-defense in California. A defendant is not required to retreat. He or she is entitled to stand his or her ground and defend himself or herself. And if reasonably necessary, to pursue an assailant until the danger of death or great bodily harm has passed. This is so even if safety could have been achieved by retreating. So California is a stand-your-ground state. It does not require the element of avoidance. In California, an act, a threat, or use of force is lawful if it meets only four elements of self-defense. Not five, four. Innocence, imminence, proportionality, and reasonableness. Avoidance is not required. If a defender is missing avoidance, if they fail to take advantage of a safe avenue of retreat in California, that does not matter. It does not invalidate their threat of force, their defensive display as unlawful. That's California, one of the jurisdictions from which these judges were drawn. The second jurisdiction was Massachusetts, 
Well, Massachusetts takes a rather different approach. In Massachusetts, there is a generalized legal duty to retreat, and they enforce it very vigorously. In fact, Massachusetts is one of the most extreme duty to retreat states. In most duty to retreat states, they do not impose that duty. And there's only 11 of them anyway, folks. But in most of those 11 duty to retreat states, the small minority of U.S. states that are duty to retreat states, in most of them, they only impose that duty before you can use deadly force in self-defense. If you're only using non-deadly force in self-defense, you don't have a duty to retreat, even in the majority of duty to retreat states. In Massachusetts, they take a more aggressive approach on the duty to retreat. In Massachusetts, you have a legal duty to retreat, if safely possible, before you can use any degree of force in self-defense, deadly or non-deadly. So we just saw California, no duty to retreat, even if safe retreat were possible. In fact, you can pursue your assailant until the danger has passed. Massachusetts, absolute duty to retreat before you can use either deadly or non-deadly force in self-defense. So in California, where you only need four of the five elements to be lawful self-defense, innocence, eminence, proportionality, and reasonableness, in Massachusetts, you need all five. Innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. So this is uh, the Massachusetts, the relevant jury instruction. Now, Massachusetts doesn't really have any self-defense statutes. It's a weird state that way. All of its self-defense law is really found in case law, in appellate court decisions. But the jury instructions re uh, reflect the, the case law. So this is the... Um, Criminal Massachusetts Jury Instructions 9.260, self-defense, duty to retreat. A person may use physical force in self-defense only if he could not get out of the situation in some other way that was available and reasonable at the time. Note that it doesn't say this is not a condition of deadly physical force. It's a condition of any physical force. It continues, the Commonwealth the prosecution, may prove the defendant did not act in self-defense by proving beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant resorted to force, any force, without using avenues of escape that were reasonably available and which would not have exposed the defendant to further danger. That's an absolute legal duty to retreat if safely possible, folks. A Massachusetts Supreme Court decision, Commonwealth v. Santos, quote, the proper exercise of self-defense means that a person in the defendant's circumstances would reasonably believe he was about to be attacked, that he was in immediate danger of being killed or seriously injured, and that there was no other way to avoid the attack. Close quote. So that, uh, here's another decision, same thing. Uh, Massachusetts Supreme Court, 1963, Commonwealth v. Hartford, quote, the defendant, uh, was not entitled to a self-defense instruction because he began to shoot his gun rather than easily place himself out of danger by driving away. So that's Massachusetts. California, stand your ground. No duty to retreat, even if safely possible. Massachusetts, absolute legal duty to retreat before using even non-deadly force in self-defense. What about the third jurisdiction that this court looks at? That was Pennsylvania, right? Pennsylvania is kind of a hybrid because Pennsylvania has a very unusual stand-your-ground law. Pennsylvania essentially says that you do have a legal duty to retreat before you can use deadly force in self-defense unless you meet an unusual condition, unless the person threatening you 
displays a deadly weapon? What if they're just threatening you with their bare hands? Then you do have a duty to retreat. What if they display a a knife or a gun? Then you don't have a legal duty to retreat under Pennsylvania law. Do you think the survey was careful to collect that critical fact from the respondents in the survey? You think the survey authors, the authors of this study, were aware of this unusual wrinkle in Pennsylvania law, the only state that does this, that would make the difference between whether or not the lawful the, the threat of force, the defensive display was lawful or not? I bet they didn't. So here's the relevant Pennsylvania stand your ground law, statute 505, use of force and self-protection. An actor who's not engaged in a criminal activity, who is not in a legal possession of a firearm, who's attacked in any place where they have a right to be, has no duty to retreat, has the right to stand his ground and use force, including deadly force, if the actor has a right to be in the place where he was attacked, fair enough. The actor believes it's immediately necessary to protect himself against death. So that's the elements of imminence and proportionality. And here's the wrinkle. This is a condition of stand your ground in Pennsylvania, the only state that does this. And the person against whom the defensive force is used displays or otherwise uses a firearm or replica firearm or any other weapon readily or apparently capable of lethal use. So unless that other person displays that weapon, you do have a legal duty of retreat under Pennsylvania law. You don't qualify for Pennsylvania stand your ground. Now, if they display a weapon, you do qualify for stand your ground. Did these survey authors gather this critical fact from their respondents? Would they even know to gather this critical fact? There's no evidence that they did. It's not mentioned. We're not told what rubric these judges applied. So we have to presume that each of these judges from these different jurisdictions applied the law as they understood it. That California would not require a legal duty to retreat, only four requirements for lawful self-defense. That Massachusetts judge would require avoidance. Five elements are the test for lawful self-defense in Massachusetts. And the Pennsylvania judge would need to know whether or not the other person displayed a weapon to evaluate lawfulness. A fact which this study gives no indication was collected. Probably because they didn't know. So let's compare and contrast these three states. California, four elements of of self-defense. It's a stand-your-ground state. Evidence is not required. Massachusetts, all five elements are required. Avoidance is vigorously enforced in Massachusetts against any use of defensive force, whether it's deadly or non-deadly. And then Pennsylvania, conditional stand-your-ground, based on whether or not the other party displayed a weapon. Three different tests. This study gives no indication the authors were even aware of these different standards. So what happens then? Imagine a scenario. One of the respondents, many of the respondents, say, well, I displayed a firearm, and they describe the facts of the case, and the facts are such that the elements of innocence, imminence, proportionality, and reasonableness are incontrovertibly present. The only question is, did the defender fail to take advantage of a safe avenue of retreat? That last question goes to the element of avoidance. And it changes whether or not this scenario would be lawful, this identical scenario in each of these three states 
It changes whether that would be lawful or unlawful, depending on the state. So California, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, the defender failed to take advantage of a safe avenue of retreat. Under California, that's still a lawful use of self-defense because avoidance is not required. California is stand your ground. There is no legal duty to retreat, even if safely possible. Under Massachusetts law, that exact same scenario, unlawful, because Massachusetts does impose a vigorous, generalized legal duty to retreat. If you fail to take advantage of that safe avenue of retreat, your use of force is unlawful. You're required to have the element of avoidance. You don't have it. And if you don't have a required element of self-defense, it was not lawful self-defense. It was a crime. Same exact scenario. Lawful under California law, unlawful under Massachusetts law. What about Pennsylvania? Well, how would you know? Because Pennsylvania, that judge would need to know whether or not the other party displayed a weapon. And we have no indication from the study that that was a fact collected in the survey. Okay. Now I have to back to the actual study. So the whole law question, and that's the question of the study, right? Whether it's more likely that the defensive display was lawful or unlawful. The, the, the study's not competent to answer that question because they don't understand the legal test. They don't understand it varies by state. They just ask these judges and then they, they kind of uh, amalgamated the responses. They don't understand how the calculator works and why it would give different answers to the same exact inputs. Let's pull the study back up. And even then, <laughs> the judges were asked for guesses. I mean, it's contemptible. This is not science. The results, let's share the results from this garbage study. The percentages of respondents reporting hostile gun displays in the two surveys are not statistically different, nor are the percentages of respondents reporting a self-defense gun use. Well, when you have very small ends, very small numbers of respondents, and we do, folks, it may sound like a lot, a couple thousand. It's an infinitesimal fraction of 2.5 million defensive gun uses a year. It's an infinitesimal fraction of even the authors own 160, 120,000, 160,000 defensive gun uses a year. When you have small ends, you just don't get very useful results. But in any cases, results of the two surveys are therefore combined in the analysis. Hostile gun displays. I presume this means unlawful gun displays. Of course, the, the, the legal question is not whether or not a gun display is hostile. If I'm presenting a gun to shoot someone who's trying to kill me or my family, I, I'm likely doing it in a pretty hostile way. That doesn't make it unlawful. But hostile gun displays. On the 1996 survey, 122 respondents, 122 people, 122 out of 2.5 million defensive gun uses a year, 122 respondents reported a hostile gun display against them. We eliminated over half of these for a variety of reasons. So they start with that infinitesimal number and they throw half of them out. Amazing. That's what I mean by the percentage of exclusions here 
is, is unbelievable. 50%. More than 50%. They eliminated over half, leaving 58 civilians who reported 120, 112 hostile gun displays against them in the previous five years. All right. So first of all, I already talked about the low end, right? 58 effective respondents here. But isn't this interesting? Doesn't this make you think? 58 respondents, and collectively they reported 112 hostile gun displays against them. Folks, I've carried a gun every day of my adult life, more than 30 years now. I've never had a gun pointed at me in a hostile manner, not just in the last five years, in the last 35 years. How many of you have had a gun pointed against you in a hostile manner in the last five years? Now, some of you probably have. Thousands of people will watch this show. But how many of you had it happen more than once in the last five years? Because this is almost two to one. 58 respondents, 112 hostile gun displays against them. Does that suggest there's some, this, these 58 people are not representative of people generally in the U.S.? But the authors never, they never question this. They just accept this as this, this must be representative. On the 1999 survey, 131 respondents reported a hostile gun use against them. One man reported 97 gun uses. One person, a civilian, reported that he'd had guns pointed at him in a hostile, presumably unlawful manner 97 times. Finally, this was too much for the authors. That guy was excluded. They also excluded 15 police, security guards, and military personnel, 14 people who responded that their gun user might have thought that they were a criminal, and one who reported that the event took place six years before the survey. Of the remaining 100, we received a verbatim description from 50. So the facts they need, the judges would need to evaluate lawfulness, they only collected those facts from 50 people. 50 out of 2.5 million gun uses a year. 6% appear to have merely witnessed the event, so they eliminated 6% of the whole 100. So 6% of the 50 appeared to have simply witnessed the event, so they just presumed that percentage would apply to the other 50, even though they have no evidence to support that. They're just, they're just presuming that to be the case. We eliminated 6% of the 100, leaving 94 respondents who reported 159 events. Again, folks, it, it's, it's like 1.5 hostile defensive gun displays against each of these people in the last five years on average. Does that seem credible? Do they seem representative of the U.S. generally? I mean, I could imagine you live in a very high crime environment. Maybe, maybe they're telling the truth. But that's not representative of the country. By the way, they, they didn't eliminate 50% of the 100, which they should have done because they only have facts, a verbatim description from 50. They only eliminated 6% of the 100. So they kept 94, even though for about half of those 94, they don't have the facts necessary for the judges to determine lawfulness or unlawfulness. After appropriate exclusions, 152 respondents from the combined survey reported 271 incidents. Again, folks, a greater than one-to-one, -one, almost a two-to-one ratio of hostile gun displays for each of these people.
on average. Then, then, and this is really not science, then the study gets to anecdotes. They pick out two anecdotes, three anecdotes, even out of their hundred cases, which is a pathetic number. We're not seeing all hundred. We're just seeing the two or three cases they chose to show us. And we're supposed to presume what? That these are representative of the hundred? What could be the purpose here except to induce bias, to propagandize by cherry picking particular cases that favor their hypothesis? Three examples of hostile gun displays against respondents from the 99 survey are, uh, let's see, uh, this, is, this, should, this is a typo. This is all, this should be with the first bullet point. I'm a cattle farmer and he's a cattle farmer. He was putting his bulls and heifers up near the fence and my bull broke through and he got mad. He got mad, the other farmer. So that was a defensive gun display. I was on a date. He pulled the gun when I mentioned breaking up with him. I was mugged in New York. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure what we're supposed to make of these, except based on the limited facts available, they don't appear to be lawful displays of guns, but there is no legal analysis here. Self-defense gun use. So we just had hostile gun use, right? Where was that? Hostile gun displays. Now we have self-defense gun use. I wonder why they don't use the same terminology. It's it's really poor form. They should have self-defense gun display if they had hostile gun display. Because use and display don't necessarily mean the same thing. Right? Use of a gun is different than display of a gun, I would suggest. In any case, on the 1996 survey, 14 civilian respondents reported using a gun in self-defense in the past five years, accounting for 54 incidents. Again, this crazy ratio. I've carried a gun for more than 30 years. I've never pointed it at anyone. I've never needed to. But these people have a three to one, better than three to one ratio of pointing guns at people in what they claim is self-defense for each individual on average. Does that seem representative of the general public? And again, if anything, this would be underreported, right? Because saying I pointed a gun at another human being raises the prospect of legal liability. On the 1999 survey, 29 civilian respondents reported uh, using a gun in self-defense. I guess they mean display. They don't even really say. Uh, accounting for 92 gun uses. Again, a better than three to one ratio. 29 people used guns three times each on average over the last five years. For both surveys combined, a total of 146 self-defense gun uses were reported by 43 people who were not police, military personnel, or security guards. Again, that three-to-one ratio. It's crazy. Uh, by the way, there, I'm not going to go through all the tables here. I will, in the description for today's show, link to the actual PDF of, of the actual study, so you can see the study in, um, in its original form. In each survey... The number of respondents reporting that they were gun victims exceeded the number of respondents reporting that they had used a gun in self-defense by over three to one, 152 to 43. Again, is that explainable by just by the inherent confounding factor that legal liability is raised for pointing a gun, but not for having a gun pointed at you? 
On both surveys combined, 2.9% of gun owners, 0.3% of those living in the home with someone who owns a gun, and 0.4% of non-gun owners reported a self-defense gun use. Uh, After eliminating police, security guards, and military personnel, approximately 1% of respondents reported a self-defense gun use. Of the 43 respondents reporting a self-defense gun use, six did not provide a description of the most recent event. So they're completely beyond evaluation. And for And for two more, the descriptions indicated that the respondent did not use the firearm. For example, one never encountered the thieves who had stolen his truck. The criminal court judges were shown summaries of the remaining 35 events. Each judge rated each event. How? How did the judge rate the event? There's no rubric provided here. There's no test provided here that the judges were each asked to apply. They don't say, for example, what they could have done here is said, listen, we'd like you to apply the model penal code section on self-defense. So the model penal code is a set of criminal statutes prepared by academics. They're not the law in any state, but they're kind of a representative, well, they're a model of criminal statutes that are often used in law schools, for example, so you don't get into little variances of state-to-state law. So you use this hypothetical model presentation of criminal statutes. They could have said to these judges, listen, don't apply your own state's laws because they could vary from state to state as they do in important ways. Don't apply your own state's laws. Apply the model penal code. And the model penal code would most match Massachusetts here because the model penal code does impose a generalized legal duty to retreat. But they don't do that. They don't say they do that. So presumably, we have to fall back on the presumption that each of these judges would apply self-defense law as they understood self-defense law, which means at best, the self-defense law of the state in which they're a judge, California, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, each of which is different in substantive ways, at the least on this element of avoidance, so that the identical defensive display could be lawful in California, unlawful in Massachusetts, and who knows, in Pennsylvania, unless you knew enough to collect facts on whether or not the other party displayed a weapon. So the criminal court judges, five judges from those three jurisdictions, uh, were shown summaries. Who summarized these? Did someone who knew what facts were important summarize these events? Someone informed on self-defense law? knew what facts would be relevant to a legal analysis? Or you you think a a grad student did it? Someone with zero education in self-defense law. I've worked in academic environments, folks. We're lucky if an undergrad didn't do this, summarizing. The criminal court judges were shown summaries of the remaining 35 events. Each judge rated each event. We don't know how presumably by their own state's laws. 20% of the time, a judge rated the case as likely as likely legal as illegal. What does that mean? Is that supposed to be undetermined? Excluding these ratings, when judges often said there was not enough information, no kidding, a majority of judges rated, meaning they guessed, right? The study authors told us, the judges guessed, they provided their best guess rated 18 of the 35, so 51%, as probably illegal. I mean, they don't know. This is not to some reasonable degree of legal certainty. Eh, 
my guess is it's probably illegal. 18 of the 35. And 15 of the 35 is probably legal. So that's about the same, right? It's almost 50-50. In 23 of 35 events, the judges were unanimous in their ratings. Nine times there was one dissenter. And in three instances, the ratings were either 3-2 or 2-2 in terms of the probable legality of the self-defense gun use. Two examples from the 1999 survey of incidents that were unanimously deemed probably illegal were, so this is what these authors are doing, instead of providing us with the rubric, with the test being applied, they just cherry-pick these anecdotes. This doesn't tell us how those five judges evaluated these cases. And of course, these are two. For example, here there's two. Two examples pulled out of 100 respondents. These were supposedly deemed probably illegal. A 62-year-old male said that at 6 p.m., the police called. My alarm at my business went off, so I went there to shut it off. Two men were outside my building, so from my car, I shot at the ground near them. The respondent said the men were trespassing. Okay, well, clearly you can't shoot someone merely because you think they're committing a simple trespass. Uh, A 58-year-old male was inside his home at 2 p.m. I was watching a movie, and an acquaintance interrupted me. I yelled that I was going to shoot him. And he ran to his car. The respondent said his acquaintance was committing a verbal assault. The respondent's gun was located in my holster on me. There's not even evidence here that he displayed the gun. For all we know, this was a jest. A joke between friends. Are we supposed to believe that someone's going to admit to aggravated assault over the phone? Aggravated assault with a deadly weapon good for 10 to 20 years in prison? Or do you think he's recounting this story to an academic as a humorous tale of something that happened to him? Two examples of self-defense gun use from the 1999 survey that were unanimously deemed probably legal were a 26-year-old male was with friends at another's home. At 8.30 a.m., a friend of mine was in the process of getting robbed, and he was drunk. We went to help him just as the robbers were leaving. The respondent's gun was not loaded, and I never really took it out of my pocket. So here we don't have a defensive display either. I thought the study was about defensive displays. This was a zero use of a gun. It never came out of his pocket. The fact that it was not loaded is also factually irrelevant to determine the legality or illegality of this non-use of a gun. This is madness. A 30-year-old male. Another one that's supposedly probably legal. A 38-year-old male was inside his home at 4 a.m. Someone broke in. I woke up to the sound. I got my gun from the safe, loaded it, and went downstairs. The person left, and I called the police. The respondent did not know whether the burglar had a weapon. So right away, we don't know that the burglar had a weapon. Is that relevant to a Pennsylvania analysis on Stand Your Ground? Now, of course, stand your ground wouldn't apply here because we're in the defender's home. The castle doctrine would relieve the defender of any otherwise legal duty to retreat. But also in that context, does not matter whether or not the burglar had a weapon? If someone's committing a burglary of your home, do they have to be displaying a weapon before you're privileged to display a gun in self-defense? Of course not. Continuing now with the study, over two-thirds, 68% of the 146 self-defense gun use incidents from the two surveys were reported by six respondents. 
What? What? Two-thirds? So nearly 100 of these self-defense gun uses being recounted in this study? Of 146, nearly 100 were reported by just six of the respondents? 99 of these defense gun use incidents were uh, from a, about 100 people were responded by reported by only six respondents. Three people claimed 50, 20, and 15 self-defense incidents in the previous five years. Does that seem sane to you? Does it seem sane that someone had 50 self-defense incidents in the previous five years? even 15, but they refused to describe the most recent event. Well, how would you evaluate it then? How would your judges evaluate it for lawfulness or not? In the 1999 survey, an 18-year-old male reported six cases. He described the most recent incident. I was at school and they pulled the gun during an argument. They fired and I fired. Wait a minute. These are, these are kids at school with guns? Is that a confounding factor? Discussion. This is where, of course, we we get into the propaganda now. Consistent with results from the NCVS and private one-shot surveys, we find, we find from this garbage methodology, garbage data, garbage legal analysis, we find that far more respondents report criminal gun uses against them than self-defense gun users by them. Well, you know what I would suggest to that? Maybe more people need to carry guns. Maybe a lot of these people didn't report a self-defense gun use because they don't have a gun. Was that asked in the survey? This study doesn't tell us. If a person doesn't have a gun, the only experience they can have is the hostile use of a gun against them. They can't have a lawful defensive gun use. They don't have a gun. Unbelievable. The results hold even though, in order to be as conservative as possible, we eliminate many of the reported hostile gun uses against the respondent and include virtually all the reported self-defense gun uses. Our surveys yield higher estimates of both criminal and self-defense gun use than does the NCVS, probably due to telescoping, because five years is a ridiculous period in which to ask people to have an accurate recollection, And due to the fact that our respondents could report a gun use without first reporting that someone tried to commit a crime against them. These factors need not differentially affect the relative incidence of gun victimization versus self-defense gun use, which we report here. Well, they don't have to. Your whole study is garbage from beginning to end, from top to bottom. However, our results should not be extrapolated to obtain population-based estimates of the absolute number of gun uses. No kidding. If we have as little as 1% random misclassification, or not so random, maybe misclassifications inherent to the crappy methodology you applied, our results could be off by orders of magnitude. It appears we can obtain substantially higher rates of self-defense gun use if we ask respondents about events in the previous six months rather than the previous five years. Do you think? And wouldn't you know that, considering that the NCVS, which you cite at the start of your own study, limits itself to six months? Why in the world would you do five years? 
If anything, the industry standard, the research standard is the NCVS with a six-month time window. On the other hand, we can obtain substantially lower rates of self-defense gun use if we eliminate the handful of respondents who report the, the vast majority of uses. Yes, you had a handful of people reporting double-digit defensive gun uses in the last five years, but then wouldn't you have to do the same for the people who reported double-digit offensive gun uses against them in the last five years? Doesn't it work both ways? Isn't the presumption here that those reports are unreliable, are insane? The various respondents who report uses that do not appear to meet reasonable criteria for actual use. What's that mean? I guess they mean lawful use or the respondents whose use appears offensive rather than defensive. But you don't tell us what the criteria is, are for evaluating legality. While it is sometimes presumed that self-defense gun is that self-defense gun use is beneficial for society. That notion has been viewed with increasing skepticism. Self-defense is bad, folks. Did you know? Had you gotten the news? Apparently, there's a bunch of people in the ivory tower who think self-defense gun use? Yeah, not so good for society. It is noteworthy that in prison surveys, about half of convicted felons who have fired a gun claim to have done so in self-defense. Oh, my God. You think that criminals might lie? about their gun use might characterize it as self-defense when it was actually criminal? Do criminals, especially convicts, ever lie about their guilt? Do they get to prison and they all confess? You know what? I said not guilty when the trial started, but the jury was right. I did it. I, it was me. Do, do these people not function among other human beings? In our survey, the criminal court judges who rated the incidents determined that at least half were probably illegal. How would they know? What was the test? How many elements of self-defense did they apply? Did they all apply the same ones? Were they provided with the facts necessary to evaluate the elements of self-defense generally and avoidance in particular? We don't know. And I'm guessing that's because the study authors don't know either. Even after assuming that the respondents had a permit to own and carry a gun, which is not required for a lawful use of a gun, lawful defensive use of a gun, and, uh, and, and assuming they described the incident honestly, we expect that the true percentage of reported self-defense gun uses that are illegal is higher than 50% for at least two reasons. Let's listen to these two reasons, why they're speculating that the bad gun uses are even higher than reported in their data. By the way, could, could they have speculated the reverse? Could they have speculated that the lawful defensive gun uses were higher than their data indicates, than their analysis indicates? But they don't want to do that, do they? So why do they expect that the true percentage of reported self-defense gun uses that are illegal is higher than the 50% their data shows? First, Three respondents reported over 58% of the self-defense gun uses, and none of their accounts were read by the judges, since all refused to provide a description of the most recent event. What? So 58% of the reported self-defense gun uses were not evaluated by the judges, even absent <laughs> knowing what the methodology would have been applied by the judges? 
Many reported self-defense gun uses from a respondent creates a suspicion, a suspicion that uses may be aggressive rather than defensive. A suspicion based on what exactly? I mean, we're allowed to make reasonable inferences from evidence. What's the evidence? If a cop made an arrest and was asked, cop makes a stop and was asked, well, what was your reasonable suspicion? And he says, well, it was, it was just a suspicion. It was a hunch. I don't have any actual articulable facts on which to base that suspicion. Is that a lawful stop? No, it is not. But these study researchers are happy to engage in that kind of speculation here. Absent evidence. Second, the reports read by the judges are only one side of a hostile interaction that usually occurred months or years before the survey. Well, isn't that on you? You designed a survey methodology. You went five years in the past. We expect respondents will view the hostile encounter from their own perspective. In any mutual combat, both participants Both participants may believe that the other side is the aggressor and that they themselves are acting in self-defense. Duh. So what was the point of collecting responses at all, given these inherent biases? In addition, when describing the event, respondents will typically want to present themselves in the best possible light. Certainly, some self-defense gun uses are legal and in the public interest, but many are not. The possibility of using a gun in a socially useful manner against a criminal during the commission of a crime will rarely, if ever, occur for the average gun owner. Well, not according to your respondents. According to your respondents, you have multiple respondents who had double-digit defensive gun uses in the last five years. That doesn't sound uncommon to me. By contrast, at any other moment, the use of a gun against another human is illegal and socially undesirable. I I don't know what they're thinking. Are they thinking that, for example, when I go out in public carrying a concealed firearm, as I'm lawfully permitted to do, that every day I'm presenting it, and the large majority of those presentations will necessarily be unlawful, and only a few would be lawful? Well, sure, if, if I was going out and doing that, but I'm not doing that. When When the gun's not necessary, it's not being displayed by law-abiding people. Regular citizens with guns, (laughs) the horror, who are sometimes tired, angry, drunk, or afraid, and oftentimes none of those things, and who are not trained in dispute resolution. Wait, I have to be trained in dispute resolution before I can shoot someone trying to rape me? That makes sense? I have to be trained in dispute resolution when I'm being faced by the muzzle of an armed robber? Or on when it is proper to use a firearm? Well, fair enough. Have many opportunities for inappropriate gun use? Sure, we all do. Right? We have many opportunities for speeding and drunk driving and arson. We have lots of opportunities for all kinds of criminal conduct. But law-abiding people don't engage in those opportunities. People engage in innumerable, annoying, and somewhat hostile interactions with others in the course of a lifetime. And what happens? Nothing. 
we might expect that unlawful self-defense gun uses will outnumber the legitimate and socially beneficial ones. Well, that's some conclusion, doctor. We might expect that unlawful self-defense gun uses will outnumber the legitimate and socially benefit ones. By law-abiding citizens? Because nothing stops the criminals from acting criminally. Trained police officers are often inadequately prepared to handle ambiguous but potentially dangerous situations. Heavy stress, confusion, and fear are inherent in most possible shooting situations. And and who brings all that on? Is it the law-abiding citizen acting in self-defense or is it the criminal aggressor? Who bears responsibility for all of that? Heart rates skyrocket, and it is difficult to think clearly and to act deliberately. Anybody wondering when was the last time this professor was punched in the face, actually had to fight somebody, actually experienced these emotions, these stressors? I'm wondering. Not surprisingly, even the police make serious mistakes in their firearm use. Always or rarely? Rarely. Individuals without training or experience can be expected to do much worse, but they don't. Most defensive gun uses are lawful. They're lawful, even though the person has no training in the law of self-defense. Shame on them. Most defensive gun uses involve people who have effectively zero training with that firearm. And most of the time it works out okay. Our findings have various limitations. Hmm, you think so? Our results are based on self-reports of past events with the potential of recall bias. Yep. The surveys undersampled poor people who may have more hostile conflicts with firearms than their richer counterparts. How many rich people are having double-digit hostile encounters with firearms? The key questions from the two surveys, though very similar, were not identical. Yeah, that's a problem. And neither survey sampled anyone under age 18. In addition, we have detailed information only on the most recent self-defense and criminal gun incidents. Well, you don't know if they were self-defense or criminal because you don't know how to evaluate that. To the extent that the most recent incident is not typical of all the incidents experienced by the respondent, our findings may not be representative. So they only collected facts. Someone reported three. They only collected facts in the most recent one. No facts in the previous two. How do you do that analysis for legality per incident? Only five judges from three states assessed the self-defense gun incidents from the surveys. They were a convenience rather than a random sample. And the sample is too small to be confident of the stability of the aggregate ratings we report here. I thought the whole question, the whole finding What's the finding? Let's go back up. We find that more respondents report criminal gun use against them than self-defense gun uses by them. How would they evaluate legality? They use the judges. The judges were a convenience, not a random sample, and too small to be confident of the stability of their aggregate ratings. Plus, they don't even mention likely apply different legal tests because they come from different jurisdictions with different legal requirements for lawful self-defense. 
Despite these limitations, our surveys provide evidence about gun uses in American society that have not been available before. The, the surveys provide a giant pile of steaming feces. The fact that it was not available before was probably a social good, Dr. Hemingway. Our results, the results, the results of bad data, bad methodology, bad legality evaluation. Our results indicate that gun use against adults to threaten and intimidate is far more common than self-defense gun use by them. Does it though? And that most self-reported self-defense gun uses are probably illegal. Really? And may be against the interests of society. By the way, folks, this steaming pile of garbage was paid for by you, by the American taxpayer. This research was supported in part by the grants from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the National Institute of Justice, the Open Society Institute, whatever that is, and the Joyce Foundation, whatever that might be. And then we have all the footnotes. I'm not going to bother going. None of the footnotes, by the way, I'll just say in summary, are explanatory. So sometimes in a good research study, they, for example, they might have had a footnote. When they reference the judges in the body of the text, the judges doing their evaluation, they might have said the judges applied the model penal code as a rubric for evaluating legality. That could have been in the footnotes. That would have been helpful. There's nothing like that in these footnotes. It's all just references to other, other journal articles, other studies. Nothing explanatory about the methodology or evaluation at all. So there we go, folks. It's not a new study. It's from 2000. I can tell you from my experience, it is representative of the typical gun control studies we get out of places like Harvard and every other government-funded academic source of evaluating defensive gun uses. Because in the gun control debate, they have a very fixed and determined position, and that position is on the control part. Not on the Second Amendment part. They don't attempt to fairly, in an unbiased fashion, in a responsible manner, with a robust methodology, good data, good analysis, having thoroughly thought out the important variables, attempt to study these kinds of issues. What they produce is what they produced here. Utter propaganda. Anti-civil rights propaganda. During the slavery period, the same kinds of people would have produced studies proving that slavery was a good thing. Because that's what they are. They're propagandists. They're not scientists. Contemptible. For shame, doctors. For shame. For shame. All right, folks. So remember, I had mentioned that we're covering a couple of uh, use of force events coming up in members-only content. And that is for members only. You can try out membership for two weeks for just 99 cents. Yesterday, we did our legal breakdown of this event. A man tried to rob a bunch of people in a car. They managed to back out of the parking space. He ran away. His getaway car went past him. They ran him over in pursuit with their vehicle. This is that video here. Car backs up, bad guy runs away, getaway vehicle goes, and kabam, they run over the robber. In the process of running him over, he gets thrown in the air, and his own gun discharges into his head. We did our legal breakdown of that. By the way, you might be surprised. 
to learn that there is considerable doubt whether or not this offensive use of this car is lawful self-defense under these circumstances. Tomorrow, we're doing a legal breakdown of another use of force event. This involves a cop who stops a suspect driving a stolen U-Haul and finds himself in a vicious fight for his service pistol. Our That video goes on for many, many minutes because we have different surveillance cameras, different body camera footage, uh, and there's a lot to learn for self-defense law and tactics from this tragic event. Now, fortunately, it worked out well for the officer, and it worked out very poorly, (laughs) very poorly indeed uh, for the suspect. But all of that use of force video analysis is stuff that we only do for our law of self-defense members. So if that's of interest, 99 cents to try it for two weeks. If you stay a member after that, it's only about 30 cents a day, folks. 30 cents a day, less than $10 a month to be a law self-defense member. Try it out for two weeks for 99 cents, 200% money back guarantee, negative risk opportunity at lawofselfdefense.com slash trial. And with that, I will take a look at the member chat. Let's see. Uh, Josh says, fantastic analysis of the study. We appreciate you doing these. It's my pleasure. Eric, these numbers make it seem like we live in a Clint Eastwood film. No kidding. Or or all these people are friends with Alec Baldwin. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Uh, Eric, so here we have for the self-defense category, we have exclusions based on lack of information, but we don't have that option for hostile display. Correct. Eric, so merely having a gun in the vicinity of some dubious encounter is enough to make it into the survey. Yeah, interesting, right? The case where the, the person never got the gun out of their pocket, their unloaded gun out of their pocket was counted as a defensive gun use. Uh, let's see. Um Another law self-defense member writes, I have a MS in criminology and the NCVS is self-reported information and is thought to be better to fill in the gap. The reported crime data is not able to provide. Yeah, that's right. Um, let's see. Uh, Tony D says, question, why are appellate court decisions so hard to obtain by non-lawyers? Uh, well, I, they're not hard to obtain They're Most of the appellate court decisions are available on the internet. The trouble is they're not really searchable on the internet. Um, the internet doesn't provide a good search engine for that. You need, um, a professional legal database like Lexis or Westlaw. Um, and my office uses Lexis and admittedly Lexis costs my office thousands of dollars a year, uh, for our account. Uh, But you generally, in most jurisdictions, they'll have a public access law library, usually within a a block or two of the courthouse. Uh, And usually that law library will have a computer terminal for public use that has Lexis or, in my experience, more commonly, they have Westlaw for some reason, uh, where you can do like a Boolean search for, you know, using search terms and so forth uh, to find uh, appellate court decisions from particular states or federal circuits or whatever the case may be. Um, so if you're not willing to pay for your own Lexus account, and why would you be if you're not an attorney in practice, 
uh, then I would look to one of those law libraries. If you know the case you're looking for, you don't need to do a search to discover it, but you know the parties, uh, preferably you actually know the citation, the unique identifier, the license plate number for that case, uh, then, uh, then you can generally just find it using Google. Let's see. Uh, you know, someone linked to the professor's bio on Wikipedia. Let me see. Let me take a look at that and make sure it's safe for work. Um, oh, he worked for Ralph Nader back in the 60s. How about that? How about that? Got rid of a perfectly good car. The good old Corvair, which uh, certainly wouldn't meet modern safety standards, but was a pretty cool car at the time. Yeah, just, just another left-wing gun control nut. Uh, let's see. All right. I think that's everything in the member chat I needed to address. So uh, one hour, 40 minutes in, I think I'll wrap up today's show. Uh, again, yesterday's Legal breakdown of a use of force event, the robber run over by the car, members only content. Tomorrow's breakdown of the officer in a life or death fight for his service pistol with that suspect. A suspect who, by the way, was extremely patient in attempting to secure control of that officer's gun. He was willing to take his time, wait for the officer to get tired. That's that's dangerous. Uh, we'll cover that in tomorrow's show. But again, that'll be for law self-defense members only. I encourage you to try it, folks. You can get trial membership, two weeks, unlimited access to all our members' content at lawofselfdefense.com slash trial for just 99 cents. It doesn't make any sense not to do it. All right, folks, with that, I remind all of you that if you carry a gun so you're hard to kill, so your family is hard to kill, that's why I carry a gun, so me and my family are hard to kill, then you also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law so you're hard to to convict. Until next time, I remain attorney Andrew Branker for Law Self-Defense. Stay safe.